very good evening to you. Um, I'd like to welcome you uh, to the LSE, or if you're normally here, good to see you this evening. Uh, my name's Tony Travers from the School of Public Policy, and I'm going to chair this evening's event. Um, there is a hashtag, the, the event's called Brexit Third Time Lucky, for the reason that, of course, we held events on the evening that it was thought the UK would leave the EU twice before. So for those of you who are here for the two of them, good to see you again. There are two hashtags, it would appear. One is hashtag LSE Brexit, and the other is hashtag Brexit now what? Unless I assume it's not one long hashtag. Anyway, um, you'll soon find out. Uh, this is an event that is uh, co-produced at the LSE by the European Institute and the School of Public Policy. But I'd just like to say, um, as we have two members of their team here, it's a co-production with the remarkable UK and a changing Europe machine, as it's now become, uh, a remarkable ESRC-funded initiative which has lived through all the years now of the run-up to today, and I'm happy to say will live on afterwards. Anand and and Catherine have both been involved in that, as have a number of colleagues here at other universities. And I just think it's a remarkable example, UK and a changing Europe, that is, how academics can take their research knowledge and turn it into immediately accessible uh, knowledge for a much broader audience, which is not to say our other speakers this evening are not similarly doing the same themselves. Anyway, enough. Um, it is a remarkable evening. You have volunteered, everybody in the room, to spend one-third of the remaining time that the United Kingdom will be in the European Union here with all these other people tonight. So it's something uh, we, should, we should all thank each other and compliment each other, and I should certainly compliment you on the panel's behalf for being with us here this evening. It's an epic moment in the United Kingdom's and indeed the European Union's history. Uh, Others have compared it with, and I can see why a number of events in the past, certainly uh, the Reformation, which is you know, quite a big hurdle in the United Kingdom's past, but it's a rupture of that, I think, I can see, it might be viewed in that way in the distant future. It will certainly shape the United Kingdom's politics, the Conservative Party, the Labour Party, the Liberal Democrats, the SNP, Plaid Cymru, in many ways for years to come. It will obviously affect your EU politics and potential members for years to come. Uh, in the medium term, we're going to see the UK's economy altered quite significantly and possibly the EU's economy changed somewhat by a new tr set of trade deals and trade patterns which will change nearly 50 years of settled trading rules which will mean not just a generalised, you know, let's see whether it's 1% on or off GDP over X or Y years, but for some parts of the UK potentially, radical changes to their economy, and therefore that will feed through to British politics in the years ahead. So um, it's, uh, as I say, uh, an extraordinary evening, and uh, we have a super excellent panel with whom I'm not going to introduce every detail of them, because some of them will have been here before, and you'll have seen them speaking here and elsewhere in the past. But our speakers are Professor Catherine Barnard, who's Professor of Europe, European Union and Labour Law at Trinity College, Cambridge. Professor Anand Menon, Professor of European Politics and Foreign 
Affairs at King's College London and Director of the UK in a Changing Europe Project. John Mills, Founder and Chairman of JML, Economist and Author. Vicky Price, Chief, Econom Chief Economic Advisor at CEBR, former Joint Head of the UK Government Economics Service. And Sir Ivan Rogers, former Permanent Representative of the United Kingdom to the European Union. Now, what we're going to do is each of them will speak for five minutes. I will look anxious and begin to fidget if you go on for longer than five minutes, which, of course, means you just look forward and ignore me, but try, try <laughs> to do the five minutes. And uh, we're going to speak with... Uh, Catherine's going to speak first, followed by Ivan, followed by Anand, followed by John, followed by Vicky. There's a logic to this order which will become clear as the evening goes on. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Catherine Barnard. So I've got five minutes to talk about Brexit and the future, so I will be <laughs> extremely, extremely brief. I'm sure my colleagues will fill in the gaps. But what I want to do is to take you to the timetable. We've looked at this before, but now it is updated to um, summarise exactly where we're at. Just to be clear, when we're talking about Brexit, we're talking about two deals, not just the one. Deal one is the withdrawal agreement, and the withdrawal agreement is the Article 50 text, and it's a text, it's a Theresa May slash Boris Johnson text. And that is what was given legal effect in Parliament uh, last week in the EU Withdrawal Agreement Act 2020. And what happens tomorrow is, as a result of the withdrawal agreement, we go into transition, and transition goes by the total misnomer of implementation periods, what the government insists on calling it, but that is a total misnomer because there is absolutely nothing to implement because we don't know what the future is going to look like. We don't know what the future deal is going to look like. And that is deal two. Deal two is meant to be the free trade agreement. It is what's going to lay down our relationship with the EU, or not, as I will say, um, for the next 40 or so years. So actually what is going to be negotiated in the next 11 months is really important. So we um, have left the EU, or will have done in um, three hours, uh, four hours' time, and uh, we go into transition. And in that transition, it's basically status quo as far as you and I are concerned. Uh, as far as EU institutions are concerned, there will be no British representation, except in truly exceptional cases. But um, the fact is, EU law will continue to apply, and we will continue paying um, into the budget. And then the next uh, stage is the EU's got to come up with a mandate to mandate the European Commission to give the Commission the power to start the negotiation process. The mandate will be published on Monday and it should be approved by the end of February and only then will negotiations start. Negotiations will not be the priority for the EU in the first um, months and we will eventually crescendo towards uh, June, the end of June. That's a really important date because that's the deadline, the last moment when the UK can ask for an extension of the transition period. 
and the extension of the transition period, were it to be asked for, can be for one or two years. But as we know, in the 2020 Act, the government has said they will not ask for an extension. Also note at that deadline, there's meant to be an agreement on fish. Fish is a big issue. And also um, an agreement, uh, well, uh, an equivalence decision on financial services. As the way things stand at the moment, um, we shall leave on the 31st of um, December from the transition period, from that status quo, and we will go into um, either the new trading arrangement or there will be a further cliff edge at the end of that period. And so that's more or less uh, the timetable that awaits. Domestically, we've done a lot already to give effect to a certain amount of legal certainty by continuing uh, the whole corpus of EU law into UK law. But of course, as a result of leaving the European Union, once transition comes to an end, we can turn off the bits of EU law that we don't like. Now, there's an oddity because the 2018 Act tries to turn off EU law. But in fact, the 2020 Act had to turn it back on as a result of the transition period. But then the tra the, it will be turned off again at the end of this year. And then we need more legislation to give effect to that uh, deal that's negotiated. I'll come back to that point in a moment. Now, what about the future? Well, in two minutes, this is Barnier's staircase. And this was a staircase that he published in 2017 about the alternatives. What are the possible um, arrangements? In summary, the closest, the most proximate is the EEA, the Norwegian arrangement um, at, at the uh, top there. But then, actually, because of all the things that the UK has ruled out, we head down the staircase. We will not be getting something like Switzerland, nor something like Ukraine, nor something like Turkey. In fact, we end up in Canada. And that is what's likely to be what Boris Johnson will say in his speech uh, to the public on Monday night. The odd thing is, Canada is 6,000 miles away, France is 26 miles away, and geography matters in international trade, but I'll leave that to the economists to explain that case. So what are the key issues? Now, in fact, the one thing that we do know is there's a political declaration which was political. It was agreed alongside uh, Boris Johnson's version of the withdrawal agreement, and that tries to set out what the future relationship might look like. And what's really striking about that is um, there's something in that declaration um, which covers virtually all things, uh, suggesting that we could be close or we could be far away. Um, but it's likely it will cover um, general matters, as they call it, uh, economic matters, security matters, and then there may be supplementary um, agreements um, at the same time. In other words, what we're going to see is um, some sort of um, arrangement that looks like this. Now, this is the European um, uh, diagram. It's not my own. And this is how they conceive of what the future relationship might look like. Now, the EU likes doing things in terms of buildings. For those of you who ever studied the Maastricht Treaty, you might remember the pillars. Well, here we go. We have another building here. But what you can see in the building is they want an overall 
general governance framework. Now, governance is the jargon term for an arrangement that talks about who is going to make the decisions and, crucially, what happens when things go wrong. What role will the, will the European Court of Justice have? And as you can see, there's the blue part, the economic component, um, which may include a free trade agreement. It will. Can you see fish? Do you see fish? Is in capital letters. Fish. <laughs> tiny, tiny percentage of the economy in the UK. It's 0.04% of the economy, but it's a really big issue. I mean, its importance far exceeds its, its um, economic value. Fish is in capital letters, so that's clearly important. Energy and transport, and then a bunch of other things that haven't been sorted out yet. So you've got that component of the building, and then the other bits that the EU's very keen on, which is security component. Do note the bit that's almost become obscured, the European Convention on Human Rights. Now, European Convention on Human Rights is not um, part of uh, uh, EU law. It's a separate body of law um, coming from the Council of Europe. It's something that the Conservative Party has long been suspicious of, but note that it will be a requirement. So, going forward, that's what the agreement might look like. Final thing I want to say is something about process. Process usually turns people off. I will be brief, but it is really important. On process, Article 50, which is the process up until now, it's the process that led to the withdrawal agreement, Article 50 is actually, legally speaking, quite a benign or easy process because it only required qualified majority voting um, in uh, the Council. It could leave the European Parliament to say yes to the deal two days before um, we were due to leave. And crucially, it did not require ratification of all of the national and regional parliaments. It was all done at EU level. What you need to know is that the new... The future trade agreement, trade deal number two, is likely, at least the EU has said, to be an association agreement under Article 217 and um, with the process laid down in 218. You will all become as familiar with 218 as you have done under of, of Article 50 to date. But if the agreement is broad, it will be called what's called a mixed agreement and a mixed agreement means it's got to be agreed not just by the EU, but also by all the national and regional parliaments, 27 plus the six or so in Belgium, including the good folk of Wallonia. And if you remember, the good folk of Wallonia were not very keen at all on the Canadian free trade agreement. Long and the short of it is they will decide at the end whether it's going to be a mixed agreement or not. And if it is going to be a mixed agreement, just think about the timing. If you're going to have to get all of those parliaments to have their say, plus the British parliament's going to have to pass legislation as well, you've really got to do your trade deal by September. So what we're talking about, a trade deal which is going to touch all of those complex issues that we've talked about, including fishing in capital letters, <laughs> all of that's got to be done between March and essentially September, October. We're in for quite a roller coaster. Thank you very much indeed. Sir Ivan Rogers. Uh, well, thanks very much for the invitation. Uh, that was a magisterial account of the process ahead of us, so I won't add anything to that other than one uh, brief point, which is 
Of course, at the time when the British asked, and it was the British who asked under the previous Prime Minister for a transitional period, uh, rather laughably called the implementation period, we thought that there would be 21 months of transition from March 2019 to December 2020. So we've already lost half the time uh, in the paralysis in the House of Commons. And as Catherine says, we have 10 months, which re really means six or eight months if a deal is to be concluded, rather than the 21 months. And everybody I know on the other side of the table uh, thought the 21 months would not be sufficient to uh, conclude a serious free trade agreement. And of course, I am rather notoriously uh, said as much myself in the autumn of 2016, at the time I resigned, both internally and externally, because I was saying to ministers, not, the wild, not a wildly popular message at the time, that uh, Article 50 would just cover what Article 50 has duly just covered, purely withdrawal issues. You'd only then get to the trade and economic and internal and external security question after we left, and that was going to take at least two or three years, and because it would be in a mixed agreement, uh, would take probably another year or 18 months, maybe more, to ratify, and so you'd only get to the equilibrium state, the other side of Brexit, by the early mid-2020s. As I say, probably the least popular bit of advice I've ever given to any Prime Minister, uh, but I'm afraid it happens to be true, and we're on, cor we're on course uh, to demonstrate that. I just want to focus on, in a very short time available, on why I think, given that process, extremely truncated process, we are facing a major crisis at some point in 2020. That does not say a crisis you know, has to end in tears, and a crisis may be necessary in order for people's minds to be concentrated as to what the alternative is to doing some deal at the end of the year. So I don't want to over-dramatise it, but I think there's a much higher risk than people realise that this whole thing just doesn't work and the incentives on both sides of the table don't enable us to reach any sort of trade agreement. So let me just briefly explain that. There's a lot else I would like to cover, but let me briefly explain why. Boris Johnson's version of Brexit is different from Theresa May's. It's more distant, it's more divergent. He wants, more, he wants less alignment with the rules and the law book of the institutions we've just left. That's very clear from his whole stance in the withdrawal agreement and what he's done since taking office. It was clear before he took office when he ran for the Conservative leadership. It was clear when I worked for him as Foreign Secretary when he was in a very different position from the then Prime Minister or the then Chancellor of the Exchequer. It's not news. What do I mean about that? What do I mean by that? He wants a sort of more mid-Atlantic Brexit, as I would call it, and he wants a Canadian deal, as Catherine has said. Um, I'm never fully clear whether all in the UK side who advocate a Canada, a CETA-type deal, actually understand what's in it and what isn't in it. I keep on being asked questions by uh, private sector people in various sectors of kind of what does that mean for them, given that CETA doesn't actually cover their interests. So actually, we don't want a pure Canada deal. Canada deals says very little, nothing on energy, for example, and, very, and has very little on financial services. It's not clear to me that that's actually what we want. But let's say a shorthand he wants a Canada deal. What does he mean by that? I would say a rather thin, skinny free trade agreement of a classic variety. That's actually what I, when I was sitting there in Brussels on the morning of the 24th of June 2016, thought that would be our position because I thought actually we would leave both single market and customs union because that is rather the logic of Brexit if you choose to leave. Uh, why would you want to stay in the juridical and key institutions of either? And if you want your autonomous trade policy and a sovereign trade policy and buccaneering and bold mid-Atlantic trade policy, you want to leave the customs union. The way... Uh, Boris Johnson, I think, and his team think about this is our demands are 
um, for a less ambitious deal, a much less ambitious deal than Theresa May's, a much more distant deal, um, a thinner classic free trade agreement, and basically they think, well, that can't really be that difficult. We're not demanding that much. It's much less complicated and much less demanding of the other side than Theresa May's deal. Ergo, we ought to be able to do all this and get it tied up by the end of the year. Um, and I understand the way they think, although I think they do miss that, you know, there are all manner of things in a classic free trade deal ranging from, you know, aviation to, as I say, electricity and gas, you know, what are you going to do about interconnectors, uh, you know, and, you know, when you leave the energy single market, obviously it doesn't apply to Canada because you don't have interconnectors with Canada. The, what are you going to do about road haulage, which is obviously a huge issue for the whole UK economy, but doesn't apply to Canada. So there's an awful lot which I think would go in a normal free trade agreement with the UK in normal circumstances, which I can tell you... Uh, from long, bitter experience on trade policy negotiations is going to take longer than Number 10 understands to negotiate. Leave that aside. That's their thesis. It's quite quick, quite dirty, quite simple, quite skinny. Can't we just get on with it? It ought, ought to be doable and there by the end of the year. So that's the kind of British account, and that's the kind of Johnsonian perspective on the world. I don't want to any of these juridical institutions, and I don't want to be tied in. I don't want to roll for the European Court of Justice. I want autonomy and sovereignty and freedom to diverge. That doesn't mean to say necessarily I want to diverge in all areas of the economy on day one, but I want the capacity and capability to diverge. What's the problem with that? That's basically the Johnsonian view. Well, there's a big problem with that if you sit in the EU 27. Um, and their view is almost exactly the opposite. And I've just come back from Brussels and had lots of further discussions with, you know, old, uh, old friends and adversaries on the other side of the mm -hmm. table. I don't think I learned anything very new because it's, uh, it's something I've always thought would be their position if it came to a free trade negotiation. Their way of viewing the world, which can be deeply frustrating to deal with, and these kind of graphs and their staircase graphs can be deeply frustrating to deal with. It's a very sort of stylized Brussels legalistic view of the world, but it is the way the key players think. Their view of the world is actually, no, your demand for a thin, skinny FTA is much more complex for us to deal with than a thicker FTA, for the very reason Catherine gave. If you're close in and largely a rule taker across lots of the economy, if you're Norway, you can write that down in 10 or 20 pages and it's relatively easy to negotiate. Whereas if you're Canada, the Canada deal is several hundred pages of, uh, of text. Actually, the whole text of the CETA agreement runs to, I think, 1,600 pages. 150 pages of rules of origin. And rules of origin are not straightforward things. And then you get, you know diagonal accumulation on rules of origin and how's that going to work? And believe you me, once you get into that stuff, it's quite complex. So uh, their view of the world is, no, your demand is more difficult for us to process, more difficult to complex, more, more difficult. And the other thing, which is where they're hypocritical, if I can be honest, I want to be sort of even-handed in my abuse of both sides. Um, uh, when you look at the staircase graph, they basically sort of said, say, you can't do any of those and you end up with Canada. And he said, well, Canada's fine for me. But they didn't really mean that we were okay with Canada, because Canada isn't on offer from the European <coughs> Union. And what is their language now on Canada? Well, you're a much bigger player and you're much closer to us than Canada. We do about 30 times the volume of trade with the UK that we do, that we do with Canada. You're potentially a big monster on our coast because you're the biggest trading partner we have in the world. You're a potential competitor in our space. And therefore, a pure, thin, skinny free trade agreement of the sort that we gave to Canada is not on offer to you. Let's be absolutely clear what they're saying. They're saying, when you hear about this endless garbage about level playing field conditions, what's that? 
That's saying, in order to qualify for a free trade agreement, even as close as Canada, we expect you to take binding legal commitments in the trade treaty, which force the alignment of your law book in various areas, from workers' rights to environment to state aids to taxation, with our law book. And there's the crux, in my view. Now, that's going to be the key. I mean, I can come back to the issue of fish, which is a very small um, <laughs> issue, but a very, very difficult, obvious zero-sum game, because it's very obvious that our ministers will be saying, when you leave the common fisheries policy, we'll take back control of our territorial waters and everything will be vastly better than in the 45 years that we were in the common fisheries policy. What do you think you're saying if you're the French fisheries minister or the Danish fisheries minister or the Belgian fisheries minister or the Irish to your fishermen? You're saying, one thing I can absolutely guarantee you is you will not lose out as a consequence of Brexit. Now, that's what technocrats and bureaucrats like me are there to solve, but it's a zero-sum game. They're promising that on no account will Brexit make their fishermen worse off. We're promising that our fishermen will be much better off and have a much better arrangement from leaving the common fisheries policy. That's a difficult circle to square in the next four months. But level playing field is the really difficult one and is where this thing could fall apart because that is the natural instinct of all Eurocrats, but also the key people around the key member states I know best and have known for a very long time, and their instincts will be, we're going to drive a very, very hard bargain in this trade treaty to write down the things which you will be obliged to comply with in order to qualify for a free trade agreement that looks like that. And my instinct is that Johnson and the people around him will say, well, sod that for a game of soldiers. We didn't leave the European Union in order to have imposed on us from outside uh, as the price for getting a thinner free trade agreement, which is worse for us in terms of market access into the European market, uh, a whole series of terms and conditions and conditionalities we didn't sign up for. And this is going to be a major, major fight. Now, I think there's a crisis coming, therefore, in Q3, Q4 this year. I've always thought that. I've been publicly predicting it. I think a major crunch with the real risk. Both sides may threaten to walk out. I do think uh, Mr. Johnson will, will threaten to walk out, you know, probably this side of the summer. We'll get to a crunch point. He will not extend politically. I guarantee you he will not extend. The EU side doesn't expect him to extend. They don't want him to extend because actually their leverage is greater if this negotiation is shorter. Uh, they're again playing the clock is ticking Article 50 argument. He won't extend, but when we get to the autumn, this crunch of, is there a trade deal which is viable for them because it gives them enough assurance that we're not going to play fast and loose and be competitive on their shores by undercutting, as they call it, undercutting and dumping. That's their key concern. And his concern will be, why the hell should I sign up to a lot of conditionalities for a trade deal which gets me much worse market access than I had when I was in the single market customs union, which I've deliberately chosen to leave. So that's why I think there's big trouble ahead. <laughs> Professor Anand Menon, I think you're good. Can I stay here or do you want me to? Yeah, you can go there if you like, stay right. there. I'm going to sit here, I mean, partly because I'm a slob, but <laughs> partly because if I stand up there and start strutting around, you'll never stop me. Uh, it's nice to be here, Tony, it's nice to be here as ever. I feel like I've lived this Brexit process blow by blow since 2015. Uh, actually, we were in this very room on referendum night for the early part of it, as I recall. Uh, and I've reached the point where it's not just that I can't see the wood for the trees, I can't see the trees for the leaves. So I think it's just far too early, in a sense, for me to reflect on what's happened over the last uh, three or four years. If you're interested, I had a sort of 
emotional spasm in The Guardian this morning where I had my first go. Uh, I'll try and do something a bit more considered now, but I still think I'm probably too close to it. I want to talk about what we've learned about Britain is what I want to talk about. Uh, and there are two clumps of things, I think, that are interesting when we're thinking about that. The first, I suppose, is the profound fragility of things we used to take for granted. Uh, and this list could be a very, very long one, actually, but, I mean, as a... As a failed and former political scientist, it strikes me as odd that so many reams of paper are wasted talking about path-dependent and the reason why institutions prevent change, given the last few years that we've seen. Uh, and I think political scientists, like everyone else, just took stability to gra for granted and underestimated how fragile things really are. What are the things that are fragile? I'll just give you a, a short synoptic list. You can add things as we go if you want. Uh, the conventions that govern our politics, if you watch what happened in Parliament over the last few years, no one knew what the rules were. And no one knew who set the rules. No one knew who should set the rules. The whole thing was profoundly ambiguous. And I get the fact that we're not meant to have minority governments. But if we do, we should probably think about having written down agreed rules to make sure that they function effectively and that the system and process itself is not in question. Our system of government more broadly has come into question. We've seen the appalling way in which both politicians and newspapers have talked about judges. We've seen the way that the Conservatives now, apparently in a fit of peak for what happened in the autumn of last year, are talking about a constitutional convention. But with, you know, this age-old system by which we governed ourselves, this liberal democratic system, the very foundations of it now, it seems to me, are being challenged. Even more profoundly, I think, are the fragility of our rights. Uh, we don't have guaranteed rights as of January next year. Why? Because the only way in the United Kingdom in a system of parliamentary democracy that you can guarantee your rights was by enshrining them in EU law. Nothing else will enshrine them because we have a sovereign parliament that can change its mind at its will. Uh, so it's all very well the Labour Party saying to the Conservatives, stick us some legislation in about workers' rights. That can be overturned the next day if the government so wishes. So we don't have fundamental rights. We should probably have a conversation about whether we should have. And the final thing that is going to be big in the years to come, I think, is the fragility of the devolution settlement. We've learned a lot about devolution over the last few years, not least the fact that the Sewell Convention is a bit like, it's a bit like the Pirates Code in Pirates of the Caribbean. It's more a guideline, really, than a rule. Uh, and basically, the government will adhere to the Sewell Convention as long as the devolves say what it wants them to say, but as soon as they don't, it will ignore it. Uh, that strikes me as, as something quite fundamental in terms of understandings of how our system of interlocking powers works, or rather doesn't work. It's something you'll hear a lot of from north of the border in Scotland over the next year as the SNP do everything possible to win the majority they think they need to get a referendum in next year's elections. But again, it's less than satisfactory in a democratic system that we're not clear what rules are real rules and what rules aren't. I think more profoundly, actually, we've learned over the last few years a lot of things we should have already known about our country. I remember joking to some friends of mine a couple of weeks after the referendum that, you know, because of the referendum, the South noticed the North for the first time. And... Uh, I remember friends of mine in, in Yorkshire saying, to, just laughing about the fact that, you know, you'd go into a pub and bump, bump into four or five BBC journalists who were desperately there thinking, you know, what the hell are these people? I, I was sorry, it was almost to the point where you'd expect a sort of David Attenborough on the lever 
you know, the sex life of the northern leader. This is how they breed in their natural environment. I mean, the levels of ignorance we had and have about our own country are absolutely staggering. The levels of ignorance about the profound and embarrassing levels of inequality that, that plague us. The levels of ignorance about the profound and embarrassing levels of underinvestment in parts of this country. The train from Leeds to Manchester is literally a bus on tracks. Okay. Uh, now, none of this is rocket science. None of this is stuff we, we should have been unaware of before. None of it is stuff we couldn't have fixed beforehand. But actually, one of the things, and one of the very positive things for me that's come out of the last few years is our political debate has changed to recognize these things that we should have been talking about long before. Aha, your staunch remainder will say, yes, but the economy will be in no fit state to do anything about it. I disagree. Uh, what the forecasts about the economy show isn't that we're going to necessarily plunge into recession, but that our economy won't grow as fast as it would have done. And remember, the counterfactual to this referendum isn't a government that says, OK, we voted to remain, now let's invest in the North. The alternative was Cameron, Osborne and more austerity. So if you try and say to me those constituencies that turn Tory this time because of Brexit are going to be worst hit by it, I don't believe you necessarily. We'll wait and see what happens. But I think it's a good thing that our politics now actually talks about some real issues. At a minimum, therefore, for me, Brexit is about not repeating the mistakes we made in the past when it comes to ourselves. There were far easier ways to do this than by leaving the European Union. There were far cheaper ways of doing it than by leaving the European Union. But if one positive is to come out of leaving the European Union, let it be that we don't make the same mistakes in governing ourselves that we made for so long before 2016. Thank you. John Mills. Now, I'm in a fairly familiar minority situation. I'm the only person on the panel who was in favour of leave. And this takes me back to the time of the referendum and I used to go to a lot of meetings and every time you went to a meeting in London inside the M25 you guaranteed there was going to be a leave majority, a remain majority and only a few people at the back in, in, in favour of leave and they didn't say anything very much. As soon as you got outside the M25 it was all different and I'm well aware of the fact that I've almost certainly got a very leave, uh, anti-leave, pro-remain audience here this evening. But let me say a bit about why uh, I've always been sceptical about the European Union and how this bears on where I think we are now. Uh, I've got a long track record of being involved in this issue. I was the national agent, believe it or not, for the No campaign in 1975. <laughs> so I've been at this. I've been at this for about 45 years, and I'd like to take a sort of long view about what happened. Because the reason why I was a sceptic at the time was that I thought that as tariffs came down, we would do worse in, the Europe, in, in what was then the common market uh, than we were before. We'd pick up a bigger and bigger deficit, and that indeed is exactly what happened. I thought it was very likely that we would be paying more and more into the community budget, and again, that's exactly what happened. I thought the effect of the common agricultural policy which was introduced would be that food prices would go up, and poor people would be hit, and I think that's exactly what happened too. I think the whole fishery business was a disaster from beginning to end. And I don't think most people in this country want to be part of a European super state. They certainly want to have good relations with the rest of Europe. They want to go on holiday there. They want to move there in their retirement, maybe. But what they don't want to do 
is to be part of a large body of, uh, of a political entity which stretches way beyond national boundaries. And I do think that the basic building block of democracy is the nation state. And these are the sort of reasons I think which persuaded just over half the people in this country to vote for leave in the referendum in 2016. And one of the interesting figures that you may have seen there was that more than 60% of the people who voted leave would do so even if they thought they were going to be worse off as a result of it all. Now, I don't think they will necessarily be worse off, but the very fact that people put having control of their lives at such a premium, I think there's something to, to it tells us something about how people felt and the sort of political channels and currents that we've got to deal with in the future. Anyway, getting back to now the European Union and the uh, record that we've had on trade, when we joined the European Union in 1973, we did so from a position where the European Union had been growing much faster, the common market countries, than we had. And we hoped that as a result of sort of osmosis, we were going to do better. And in fact, that's never happened. And one of the reasons why the, the, the UK economy hasn't grown very well over the last 30 or 40 years since we've been in the EU is because this, our, our biggest single export market, which is the uh, European Union or the continental countries, has actually been very sluggish, mainly because of the establishment of the Eurozone, which has meant that uh, the northern countries have done relatively well, but the expense of huge problems in the south, particularly in Greece and Italy. And one of the things that's really crucial about the negotiations we've got going on, and a factor which has had a lot of bearing on who's got any weight on all this, is the size of the balance of payments deficit we have with the European Union. They sell to us about 100 billion pounds more every year than we sell to them. Now, you can argue that that's not so important because our sales to the European Union are about 40% of our exports and their sales to us are about 15% of theirs. But even so, if you look at the actual absolute figure, there's a huge, huge disparity. And I think this has a lot of bearing on what's likely to happen over the next <laughs> months when we've got these negotiations going on. Now, I'm sure there are going to be all sorts of difficulties, bumps in the road, along the lines you've just heard. Trade negotiations are complicated and difficult, and some of them take a very long period of time, though not all of them. I was at a seminar not very long ago with the um, person who was the ex-premier of Australia, Tony Abbott, and he, when he became prime minister and inherited trade negotiations which have been going on for years and years and years and going nowhere. And he took his trading officials on one side and said, I'm not having this. I want trade agreements in place with South Korea, with Japan and with China within a year. And two of them were done within a year and the other one just afterwards. So what I'm telling you from this is that what you, when you really concentrate your mind on this, it is possible to get trade agreements through much more quickly than if you let them go on for year after year. Now, whether we're going to be able to get a trade agreement through uh, by the end of 2020, I think is not certain. I think there's a reasonable chance they will, though, and that's because there's so much common interest uh, between ourselves and the European Union to get some sort of agreement in place 
that stops us having tariffs and quotas that one way or another I think we will go through. I'm, I'm sure what will happen is we'll have negotiations and disagreements which will run right up the clock. But I think there's a very sizable chance that at least as far as industrial goods are concerned, you'll have no tariffs and quotas, although there will be lots of other things that have got to be sorted out separately, and I'm sure there'll be difficulties over them, but we can take our time over that. The real cliff edge comes with industrial goods and not with these other things. So I think there's a very reasonable chance that we will be able to get that deal in place. But if we don't, is trading on World Trade Organization terms the end of the world? Now, I don't think it is, and I speak from some experience. I built a company up over the last 30 years or so, which now moves about 2,000 containers from one place to another all over the world. And about 80% of our trade is on WTO terms, which means you have to comply with the regulations wherever you're selling, you have to put up with whatever they want, you've got to get the certification in place, you've got to get the certificates of origin in place, and once you're used to it and the whole system's familiar, it really isn't that difficult. So I suspect what's going to happen over the next year is we are going to have something of a clip edge. We are going to have, well, I think we'll certainly have the threats of walking out of the room. And it's, I think it's very difficult to get a deal in place and do it really well if you're not prepared to walk away. But my guess is that we will, in the end of the day, finish up with a deal. And what do I think is going to happen to the British economy over the coming period? You will know that the, the people who were against the, European, the, the UK leaving the European Union have always taken the view that there's going to be disastrous outcomes. You remember the Treasury saying that we were going to have as big a reduction in GDP immediately after the referendum, not a few months later or a few years later, but straight away, as happened in the crash period of 2008. It didn't happen. I think what will go happen is that the UK economy will continue to grow, probably at a fairly sluggish rate, maybe 1 or 2% per annum at best, but it will continue to grow. It won't fall off a cliff because the effect of coming out of the European Union is not going to be that damaging to the UK, and I think, therefore, that we can look to the future with, with a reasonable amount of confidence. I wish the negotiations we've got well. I hope they're successful. I think they probably will be, but if they're not, it's not the end of the world. And if you're not prepared to walk away from the deal, you never get one that's really as good as you otherwise might have got. I think that was the big lesson that we came out of the uh, Boris Johnson negotiations running up to the uh, election we just had, and I think we may see that happening again. And if we do, I think there's a very reasonable chance we'll finish up with a deal which is not necessarily perfect, but one which we can all live with. And that's what I think will be. And Vicky Price. Right, but anyway, it's great to be uh, back here. For those of you who are regular uh, attendees of those events, I presume this is the last one we have since we are leaving now, uh, we've had it, um, the same panel, more or less, more or less, uh, at every deadline. And it was quite joyful, really, because we'd all meet. It was supposed to have been the last day, but we knew it wasn't. Uh, and perhaps we were never going to leave. So the majority of the audience has tended to be remain, and they, they were very happy and sort of carried on sort of enjoying themselves through the night. Well, it's a little bit different today, and I don't know what sort of mood you are. I thought I'd dress in black originally. 
uh, but then I thought perhaps that's a bit too serious. And, and then I thought, well, all sorts of different colours, uh, and I thought perhaps I'll bring out the Irish in me. And uh, so I wore green. And now, of course, for those of you who understand accents well, uh, you could tell that I'm not Irish. Uh, but Dublin is often called the Irish of the, or the Athens of the North, and I'm actually Greek. Uh, but of course, I can't see any similarity at all between the Athens and Dublin, frankly. But at least we are at sort of opposite ends of of Europe. And uh, one end, not completely then, because of course they're staying, um, is now leaving that bit. And Athens is very worried about this. Uh, and I say this because um, I'm losing some real uh, exposure that I had in Greece. I had become a bit of a a bit of a, a, uh, a celebrity because uh, Greek Sky News uh, would ring uh, every week, if not more often, and say, what on earth is going on? Can you explain this to me? And they would all introduce me, because my Greek is okay, but the business one isn't that good, as uh, Vicky Price, who worked for the government and speaks good Greek. Uh, so uh, occasionally I would forget how you say commerce in, or trade in Greek, which is pretty awful, really. But uh, the Greeks, of course, know lots of languages, and they would uh, fill it in. So if I said something in English, they would then translate it, of course, and it was all fine. And then after the election of December 12th, they just stopped ringing. And uh, I think they'd given up on us, really, completely. Because before it would be, how come? I mean, we Greece, Greeks had done so badly for such a long period of time. And, and now, look at the UK. We look at you and we think, perhaps we weren't doing that badly after all, uh, with, with everything that went on. Um, so anyway, I, I was determined to come and say that I've now lost that bit. And then they rang yesterday. Yesterday evening, I was there again. They wanted to know, what were we going to do today? Uh, so I said I wasn't going to be in front of the parliament. To, there are lots of people there celebrating already. Uh, some people had just, Tony Travers just came back. Uh, but I was going to be commenting on it and trying to say something about the economy and how it's going to be. Well, the truth is we haven't got a clue what's going to happen still. Uh, but also Brexit, even though you are all here, and they said you're taking up the last few hours of, of uh, us being members of the EU here for some reason. Um, uh, Brexit isn't perhaps the only thing that matters out there. So a number of us, you know, uh, the rest of them really, really very distinguished, and uh, such as Caroline Fairbrain from uh, the CBI, uh, Gerald Lyons, with whom I debated, we debated on Monday here at the LSE, uh, and Roger Bootle, uh, both of those last names quite uh, keen on, on exiting. We were in, one, in a very well-known TV studio, all there waiting to be wired up and everything. In fact, two of us had already made it onto the thing when, of course, that plane landed. So that plane from China, with all those people there, uh, we were replaced by just a plane. A, a plane that went slowly landing and then just laying, oh no, standing in the tarmac, not doing anything. And that took away the entire hour that we were supposed to be on. So Brexit isn't the only thing that matters, obviously, out there, but it does matter to us. It matters to economists, it matters to businesses. Of course, uh, in the margin of this, we were able to discuss uh, you know, what the issues are, and businesses have been very worried. Of course, they have to say the right things to survive, if you like. Um, and particularly, as we, knew, we know, during the whole referendum campaign, businesses have tried not to say an awful lot because every time they did, they were attacked. And perhaps the results could have been quite different if they had been more vocal. But there was there's no doubt that when they were not listened to 
over the three years of the campaign. You remember what, famously what uh, the Prime Minister said about business, a word starting with F, which uh, I'm not allowed to uh, repeat, uh, but he said F business. Uh, and uh, businesses actually felt that quite badly, and I know because I sit on various advisory panels of, of uh, trade bodies, that they had tons of meetings and came back, and then they have another meeting, the same discussions would take place, but nothing would happen. They were simply not listened to. Now, the question is, will they be listened to now? And, of course, as we heard from Catherine and, and Ivan and, of course, um, from Anand Minoy as well, uh, we have a very slightly positive uh, one from John Mills. Um, but, basically, there are tons of issues that are just not resolved at present. <coughs> uh, we don't know what's going to happen in the car sector, which, of course, as we've seen, has had a very substantial reduction in both investment and output. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen in the financial services, where... Nobody's really talking about this. Uh, Sajid Javid, the new chancellor, talks about something called enhanced equivalence. I have no idea where he got that from. I mean, enhanced, it, it exists in the dictionary, and you can just add it to whatever you like. Uh, but we all know that if you are a third country, according to the rules, as we heard from Catherine, the EU is basically a set of rules. Uh, once you're a third country, you have no mutual recognition. So you're down to equivalence. So that equivalence, as is happening, has happened in Switzerland, can be withdrawn by the EU at any time. We don't really know what it means in relation to uh, are we going to have uh, regulatory alignment. Sajid Javid, the Chancellor, uh, one day in the Financial Times says we're not going to. Um, the next day in Davos, we are. Um, at least we are, unless we decide not to. So uh, that doesn't give you an awful lot of basis on which to forecast anything. And what businesses really want is to reduce friction as much as possible. Uh, and it will cost them. It costs them. The big firms have already been able to do quite a lot of repositioning, moving businesses uh, elsewhere, but not necessarily a wholesale movement of people, but uh, they either move their headquarters uh, or they have invested, wherever they've invested, somewhere else rather than the UK. Hence why investment has been so, so low. Um, smaller ones, very worried about supply chains and so on. So we mustn't underestimate the, the way things have moved uh, and the inability actually of lots of firms to carry on if the supply chains are interrupted because, of course, they depend on the big firms still buying things from here. Of course, there's been a little bit of onshoring that's taking place. People worry that they may not be able to have access to uh, supplies uh, and they move a few things back here uh, just to, uh, to be on the safe side. But generally, uh, the smaller firms are already feel feeling uh, quite a lot under stress. So, so what's going to happen? And what can we as economists say? Of course, we're asked all the time. So I didn't do that particular one I mentioned to you, but I've done many others. Anand Menon has done 15 for the day, I think, already. has been on, on the news quiz, has done, I don't know. So we are asked, what's going to happen? And the truth is, because of everything that you've heard this evening, we still don't know. Now, the Bank of England has decided to stick its neck out, to decide not to lower interest rates, which is very strange, given that it's made this forecast earlier this week. Uh, just yesterday uh, came, uh, came out the forecast, which said that we are assuming that we are going to have an easy, sorry, an orderly exit by 2020, end of the year, with an agreement, a deep agreement in place. Okay, so... Great. So they didn't cut interest rates. They were never going to because politically it would suggest that they have no confidence in Boris Johnson's plans to spend money on infrastructure, 
uh, without necessarily looking at the cost-benefit, doing something for the regions, which, as we know, will take forever, given that they had cut everything for the regions for the last 10 years. Um, so we can talk about these things. Um, but they said, nevertheless, let's assume we have a free trade deal. Uh, question marks about the financial sector, of course, as we know. Um, very significant for, for the city. Um, what is the growth going to look like if we do that? If we do all these things, we don't have WTO rules, but actually we end up with something which the panel here seems to think mostly is unlikely to be achieved by the end of uh, this year. Right, growth this year, a huge 0.8%, so less than 1%. Growth next year and the year after may be rising to 1.5%. That type of growth guarantees an increase in unemployment. That type of growth doesn't give you the type of money you need to do all these things that they want to do, such as uh, rebalance the economy, spend a lot of money on infrastructure, unless they go out and borrow heavily, which was, of course, what the Labour Party has said that we're going to do. So frankly, I have no idea how the manifesto commitments will be met, and I have absolutely no idea, given all the uncertainties we heard today, what the economy is going to do in the next few years. Thank you very much. Okay, I'm going to stand here just because it's easier to see the panel, easier to see the audience. Just for the more pessimistic members of the panel, which is the majority. <laughs> I mean, without going to the sort of simplistic, well, you know, everybody said it would be really bad and it was, you know, didn't turn out to be so bad. The more, more the sophisticated point would be we can accept the process issues are difficult, the EU doesn't necessarily make life easy for those with whom it's negotiating, but the UK government is democratically aware, it may have a big majority now, but it's got to win another election quite soon, 23-24, I mean, it is going to find a way of making this work. They'll find a way of making Brexit work. So, in a sense, despite the pessimism of dealing with the process and all of that, surely, as ever, some way will be found to make it all work. I mean, you know, it, it's not going to be that, it can't be that binary, surely. I think it can't just be that fail shall or I, succeed. Shall I uh, try and take up the challenge on that one? Um, look, I think the, uh, where I would di disagree with John uh, on the, uh, on the eco economy is on two points. One our relative performance vis-a-vis -vis France, Germany, the rest of the Eurozone, and obviously above all Italy, which has had dismal growth now for 20 years, um, our relative performance when inside the Euro European Union, certainly over the last 25, 30 years since the advent of the single market, has been better, and we have grown in per capita GDP terms faster than any of the other major member states and faster than the Americans. So this idea that we've been sort of held back and enormously trammelled by European Union membership. Now, John may make the perfectly legitimate argument, and we'll see what happens over the next 20, 25 years, that we would have grown even faster had we managed to exit in 1992. But we have done better than the other major, major member states. We've got a major productivity problem. There are major sort of economic problems. I very much agree with Annan's uh, points about you know, the inequalities, the infrastructure underspending, we may well see a Conservative government committed now to vastly greater infrastructure spending. But this idea that we've done appallingly badly because of European Union membership, I just don't buy. The goods deficit is an interesting point where I'm afraid I've, I've always taken issue with um, politicians who've argued that because we have a huge goods trade deficit, 
um, they will fall over themselves to do a, a deal with us um, which is zero quotas, zero tariffs. I, I, I don't agree. Um, I, uh, it is in their interests, as it is in our interests, ultimately to do some sort of trade deal. And I've been advocating ever since I resigned a free trade agreement, ideally a comprehensive one. But again, to come back to my problem with John's account of why is the WTO, it's not the end of the world. Nothing is the end of the world because all economies adjust to whatever situations you put them in. Leaving the single market and the customs union is a significant supply shock, may also be a demand shock. We don't do that tonight. We do that at the end of 2020. That shock is coming. It's appreciable. The WTO does not cover you know, electricity and gas interconnectors. It does not cover road haulage. It does not cover aviation. There are huge sectors of the economy where we need a deal with the European Union to replace the existing deal with the European Union that have nothing whatever to do with the WTO. That's my problem with it. So the pessimism is, because I don't believe the economy is going to fall off a cliff. I don't believe we're going to live in permanent recession between here and 2030. I think what we have done at a time when our trend growth, according to the Office of Budget Responsibility, is running at about 1.5, and where the Bank of England, as, uh, as Vicky said, produced forecasts yesterday which are lower on growth and says the sustainable rate of growth for the next three years is just 1.1, we have added significant headwinds for the next five to ten years to the UK economy. I don't make any more dramatic claim than that. We've just made it more difficult to improve our trend growth. And the job of people like me and Treasury officials around the system is, after all, to find initiatives, domestic and international, which increase our trend growth, because that makes us more prosperous and enables us to spend more on our priorities. Okay, so it's a, it's a less dramatic account. It's just we've, we've made it more difficult. Anand? Oh, just a couple of things. I mean, building on that to an extent. The first is I think we need to just consider what we mean by making it work. I mean, for me, we're living in an era of the triumph of politics over economics. You have a Conservative government that's saying, yes, what we're about to do is to hurt businesses. Get ready for it, prepare for it as best you can, buckle up, this is what we're going to do. Think back to last, the election last year, and the Conservative manifesto was very interesting because the Conservative manifesto talked about Brexit as a trial we had to endure rather than an opportunity we had to seize. And it was a very interesting change in emphasis from the Conservative Party. This is something we just have to do. And actually, the, one of the, there, there are two calculations here, I think, being made by the government. The first is you will get a tremendous amount of credit just for doing it, yeah. getting it done. We voted to do it. Politicians have messed about. We have a Prime Minister who now does what he says. And actually, one, one part of the calculation is the very fact of that makes the Prime Minister popular, regardless of the impact. The second part of it, I think, is about the political effects of economic impacts. I agree with Ivan. I don't like this term cliff edge at all, partly, ironically, because significant Brexit effects have already been held, felt. We're already down the cliff, which means the distance we have to fall is less than it would have been. Businesses will start to adapt during this year. There won't be a sudden 1st of January next year effect. Actually, in that sense, whilst the effects will be significant, they will be quite subtle, and it's far from clear to me what their political impact on voters who supported Brexit and supported this government will be. If at the same time you have this government, and I think they'll be very good at this, starting to dig holes in Blythe or Berry or Wakefield with a big sign saying Boris said he'd do this and he's doing it. In constituencies where you've seen no investment for 30 or 40 years, I wouldn't count on the fact that the negative headwinds created by Brexit, and there will be some and they will be severe, will outweigh that perception that you have a Prime Minister who cares, who does what he says, and I would not discount the possibility that even with 
a minimal deal or no deal, the Conservatives could win the next election on the back of that. And that, after all, is what the game of politics is about. John? Yeah, could I just say something about uh, the uh, growth rate? It is true that the British economy has grown more quickly than the EU economy over the period of uh, the last 20 or 30 years. But a lot of that has to do with the fact that our population is going up, whereas in many parts of Europe it's going down. If you look at per capita, the situation is, is actually not so good. And I think it's really hard to believe that having a balance of payments deficit of £100 billion a year is a plus for the economy. I think that all it does is it drags the economy down, it drains uh, purchasing power out of the economy, which has to be made up by borrowing money abroad and selling assets, which we've done on a wholesale basis. Uh, and it's not really the way to run the economy at all. I mean, in terms of if you do want to get the economy to grow more rapidly, uh, I have a point of view about all this. I mean, I think we've got to have an element of re-industrialisation. I think that if we don't do that, we're never going to get productivity up. I don't think you can do that without ch big changes in macroeconomic policy, a lower exchange rate, more competitiveness. And I think these actually, in the end, are much, much bigger factors than anything that the... Uh, negotiations with the trade with the European Union is going to, to, to achieve. And one final point I would say is that actually we had an exchange rate of 160 or something or 155 just before the referendum. It went right down to about 130 or 120 at some stage. And there was quite a substantial burst of growth as a result of that, which has dissipated down because the, the exchange rate has gone, drifted back up again. It only goes to show how these factors are very, very important in terms of determining which way the economy is going to go. So I think you've got to be very careful that you don't get mesmerised by the EU negotiations because of these other big factors behind, which I think are actually much more important. Vicky? Um, yeah, I think it's, it probably doesn't make huge amount of sense to sort of go back and, and look at how we've done. I think uh, the general consensus is that the EU has been good for us and trade is good. Uh, and uh, remember, of course, that without trade we're not growing, and what's happening right now in the world economy is because trade has slowed down, in fact, probably fell last year. Uh, the, the world economy has grown at the slowest it has since before the financial crisis, so uh, since the financial crisis, really. So that's a, a, a big, big issue. And to talk about uh, the, the, the deficit that we have, I think I agree entirely with, with Evan Rogers that, that uh, it doesn't really affect the, the leverage, if you like, that um, we have at all against, uh, against the Europeans. Um, the balance of payments always balances. Okay? That's why we, we're taught in economics. Uh, and there's a lot of capital that, uh, money that is invested here, uh, and that's how it happens. And if you look at financial services and the service sector, generally the ser services have a surplus uh, with the EU. Fed, we've had a surplus there for ages. Uh, and the financial sector itself that we are worrying about right now contributed something like 80 billion to the exchequer just last year. So, so we, we uh, are talking about protectionism almost the way that, that President Trump does. Uh, he's used exactly the same words to wage his war against China. And look where that has left the world economy. But in fairness, John isn't saying that, is he? John is, he, what, is John's a pro-free... No, no, pro, pro no, 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 no. On the on, trade, on trade, most exactly definitely. The same, exactly the same argument. No, no, John. I'm no, not. I it's the same argument. argument. Trump is making that argument against yeah, the European Trump Union John, and saying John. it's intolerable that we have a massive trade deficit. That is I understand that. It's exactly no, I'm just saying argument. that... But, but in, disagree with the argument. in Britain, many elements of the pro-Brexit case have been pro-free trade. And I think you are, John, are you? 
Yes, I'm afraid. Or afraid yeah. Generally, as, as long as it as it, it, it results in a surplus, right. obviously, you've got to get the exchange rate right. Otherwise, you finish up with all these imbalances, which are the curse of the world at the moment. Okay, right. Questions from the audience now. Uh, we've got about twenty or so minutes left. Sorry, audience. Um, where shall we start? Gentleman here in a striped tie, which makes you easy to see, which is a good thing. Lady there in a brown um, cravat, and then a gentleman there in a Okay, so Brexit. You won't say who you are. Oh, I'm BJ Strau. Um, I was a student here a long time ago when Dr. Sked started the uh, uh, UKIP here. So Brexit started at the LSE. Um, So why. (laughs) (laughs) So when are we going to get the blue pack? Anyway, so um, about uh, this non regression. why should countries like Luxembourg be allowed 3% corporation te- tax effectively and Ireland 5.7% and the UK should be forced to keep theirs at a higher rate? Because they, the EU, why is the EU trying to lock us into higher corporation um, tax rates? And the other thing is um, aviation um, uh, supply chains are governed by global agreements. The person from the organization um, I think it was the European Parliament event said the only problem would be like one day extra at customs okay. so that's, that's I wanted to just answer that but why does the EU want us to keep, keep us down by locking us into okay. a level playing All field right. clear question, a lady there then a gentleman there and I'll, I'll, we'll get more but short questions, short answers, we'll get more questions go for it Thank you. Jana Dreyer from uh, Borderlex, a trade policy publication, and LSE alumni. Um, I have a question mainly for Ivan Rogers, uh, but also maybe for Catherine, um, related to that level playing field thing. Uh, Ivan, you, you mentioned this LPF thing is garbage. Can you expand on it, uh, please? Second, I have a second uh, short question. Do, will the UK... Uh, what's your prediction? Will the UK become more of a free trading type of nation or more of a protectionist type of nation after leaving the EU? What's your prognosis? Thank you. Okay, that's the struggle inside the Conservative Party, I suspect. There's a great question. Gentleman there. Uh, Adrian Turner. Um, can I just ask, do you think that uh, Boris's brand new deal has hastened the unification of Ireland? Okay, three really challenging questions there, right? Let's take the first one about tax and Luxembourg. And what is, why is Luxembourg treated differently if it is? Um, yeah, I, I think the taxation issue will come, and uh, I can try and explain. I don't think it is corporation tax rates. Um, um, I think it will be things like codes of conduct on business taxation, which I negotiated 20 years ago for a Labour government um, in the European Union, and those kinds of issues. I don't think it's a rates issue. There are very interesting questions about what effective rates of corporation tax are, and the Dublin Docks rate and the Luxembourg rate, and here, uh, you know, I totally buy, I totally buy that. Um, this conditionality argument is complex. All trade agreements, to some degree, have some conditionalities. The point I was trying to make, trying to make it very even-handedly, is the the UK side will say, why are you imposing this very intensive, stringent conditionality on us when all we want is a relatively light free trading deal which looks like Canada's and you don't impose that on Canada? And the EU will say, because with you, you're a much bigger partner 
And if you were to abuse subsidies regime, for example, and go much bigger on state aid volumes and intensity in the jargon of Brussels and tax subsidies in order to attract business out of our jurisdiction, that's a material threat to us, which Canada isn't. So that's the argument. Now, I don't want to sound too depressing about the level playing field argument to pick up the level playing field argument. It's extremely complex. I could make both sides of the argument, um, and, you know, because I'm a bureaucrat. I, I could sort of argue the EU case. I could, I could argue the EU case. Um, you have to break it down a bit. I don't actually think we will have a huge problem on environment and energy regulation. We will, be, we will still want to be part of the emissions trading scheme and we're part of the carbon market. And... Actually, we're almost sort of super equivalent there because we're probably further on on climate change targets than much of the European Union, and we may indeed be bringing issues to resolution and saying, why are, the, why are you allowing the Poles and the Hungarians or whatever to backslide? So this doesn't all play one way. When you have a free trade deal, we may be able to have recourse to arbitration mechanisms and say, why are you not delivering on your end of the bargain? But level playing field will be difficult on state aids. Now, again, the argument run from the British government is we play at lower volumes of state aid than most of the European Union, France and Germany in particular. So what the hell's your problem? We've never paid as much. But they look at this government, if I can be very candid, and they don't think it's a classic Conservative government for all the reasons that Anand and indeed John are saying. They think it's potentially a national populist government that might spend rather a lot of money in all manner of ways to prop up failing concerns in the UK after Brexit. And that's a legitimate fear. The other problem, very brutally, and, and you know, Anand and I were just discussing it, I mean, look in a trade deal and a trade negotiation, it's brutal, it's hardball. Um, they're not going to make it easy. Um, I hope we're not going to make it easy. I expect that Boris Johnson will take quite an aggressive... But, but why do trade deals take such a long time? Partre, Mr Abbott, it may be, diff may be easier for Australia to do it with you know, South Korea and others, uh, Australia-EU deal won't be easy to do in a hurry, and the Australians are wanting an EU deal and making a lot of demands in Brussels to do an EU deal. But these things, you know, when the rubber hits the road, things get very unpleasant on, on trade deals. Will we end up more free trading or less? Don't know. I agree with the view that this government talks a good game on being free trading. Um, and I think most of them mean it. I don't mean to sound disparaging. I don't think they sit there you know, having greatly protectionist thoughts, and they do want genuinely bilateral and regional deals, recognising that multilaterals and deals are very difficult to do. We haven't completed a trade round now globally for 25 years, so it's quite difficult to do these things multilaterally. The only problem is, and we do have to repeat it, we have made trade with the partner with whom we do easily the most trade more difficult in both goods and services. That's what Brexit is. It's, it, it's not that you know, it, they may not view it as a deliberately protectionist act, but we have made trade flows stickier in both goods and services with effect from the 1st of January 2021. Trade volumes will go down, I'm afraid, certainly in comparison with where they would be, and in services they may go down a lot. There are some forecasts from rep reputable economists that say services flows may diminish by 25 to 50% over the following decade. And that's mostly to our disadvantage because we've got a huge trade surplus in services with the European Union. <coughs> oh, one, one very small thing about uh, the level playing field. I mean, you're quite right. There are lots, lots of different rates across Europe. But actually, the Commission and the EU is looking at this very carefully. And as you know, uh, Ireland has been uh, told to, to get back from Apple all the money that they should have paid in tax, which I think is about $16 billion. Mm. Yeah. Um, because they, they basically put their headquarters there and 
didn't pay any tax, um, or at least paid very, very little. So, so um, that is frowned upon increasingly in terms of those differences that are there, and I think that's going to, cons uh, to a considerable extent also inform the type of debate they have with us about the level playing field and not, and not moving to being Singapore on Thames. Uh, Anand, you're going to put Northern Ireland border? Do you want oh. to, uh, I think we ought to deal with the Northern Ireland. Is it going to lead to, is this make Northern Ireland or Irish unification more likely? I mean, I don't know whether Irish unification is going to happen in the near future, but yes, it's made it more likely in the sense that it sparked a debate, it's changed the way people think, it's altered the political landscape. We didn't talk enough during the election of what happened in Northern Ireland politics, but it was absolutely remarkable given the history of the province. So it's completely reshaped the debate. It's, you know, there was polling done, the last polling I've seen was uh, before the election, but it showed that there had been a slight increase in support for a border poll. Uh, there are lots of hurdles in the way. There, are, there is lots of opposition on both sides of the border to the idea. But I think the fact is it's something that's being talked about now in a way probably wouldn't have been talked about at this point had we not had that referendum, yes. Okay, briefly, well, the, Vicky. The, the, the additional thing, of course, to bear in mind is that it is very expensive having Northern Ireland. Uh, so yes. we spend a lot of money on it uh, per capita. And, of course, you know, the question is will the Irish necessarily want to have uh, a bit yeah. of the, added to them, which is going to drain a huge amount of resources. True. There is a, a net, transfer, net transfer from the UK exchequer to the Northern Ireland of uh, £10 billion a year. Laid right at the back there. And then we'll come to the man here. So, right... Uh, yeah, all right, yes, you, the gentleman in the middle there. Was, okay, they did the back, along the corridor, yeah, and then, uh, yeah. Hello, um, Beth Warren, another ex-alumni here at LSE, so thank you. Uh, quick question about the British Constitution. Where do you see it going in the next five years? Is it time to write it down? <laughs> right, Catherine, you're on note for that one. And then the gentleman here with his hand up halfway down the aisle, and then there was another guy here. Yes, I'm sorry, yes, you had your question up. Gentleman in the blue. Yes, I'm, I'm puzzled that nobody on the panel has mentioned the elephant in the room, which is the coronavirus happening in China. You know, so you've got um, happening during the Chinese New Year uh, holidays when 100 million people leave their workplaces. Now, that um, holiday has already been extended by three days, and maybe it will be further extended. On top of that, you've got a province of 60 million people, which is the university capital of the country, which is completely in quarantine. The country is in quarantine, and it's quarantine within the quarantine. I mean, the world economy is very fragile with huge amounts of QE. Um, surely Brexit should be delayed for three months so, uh, and the interim period of 11 months begins at the well, I end must say, of April. A, a, a brilliant segue, as they say in radio. I wondered where you were going with that, and well done to get it there, whatever you think about And the gentleman here in the blue jumper at the front. Hello. Uh, I'm Ali Alagora, Emeritus Professor of International Economic Integration. To distract from the general argument, I agree with the panel, but uh, Mills said that when we joined the European Union, uh, the European community, we were impressed by the uh, rate of growth of the community. And then he said, well, we went in and the rate of growth went down, but he conveniently forgot to mention that the whole of the European community's rate of growth went down, and that's because of the Nixon shock, because of the price oil increases shocks, 
and because of the enlargement shock of adding new member countries of poorer standard. Okay, uh, I'll allow John to come back on that one. So, uh, Catherine, is it time to write down the British Constitution because of all of this? And the thing that Anna was talking about earlier as well. I've often thought it's a bit like after you've had a very large dinner on Christmas Day, you think, I must do exercise. (laughs) When it comes to the middle of January and you're thinking about doing exercise, you think it's not such a good idea. And I think that's what we've seen a bit in the last few months, that um, it is, uh, we have discovered huge lacunae. Um, The fact that um, people have suddenly started reading Erskine May, which is the parliamentary bible, to try and find out what our constitution might or might not say, um, is illuminating. But the reality is, if you start thinking about writing down the constitution, that raises the question about who actually is going to do the writing down of it. Do we need to have a constitutional convention of some sort? (coughs) And how might that be executed? Um, And... It is true that we are not quite unique because Israel and New Zealand don't have a written constitution either. Um, Of course, the flexibility of our constitution um, is appealing, but when it came to a crisis, it really was shown wanting. But of course, even if we'd had a written constitution, would it have really had the detail in it to tell us how long Parliament could be prorogued for or not? It It would inevitably have a rather generic nature. Where there is going to be an issue, which has not been discussed at all, is um, what happens with uh, devolution and specifically what's going to happen in the lacuna left by uh, the absence of EU law. To give you a small example, Scottish Government runs a policy to say, buy Scottish goods. Well, by definition, if you're buying Scottish goods, you're not buying English and Welsh and Northern Irish goods. At the moment, that would be challenged under EU law as being contrary to Article 34. At the moment, once we leave tomorrow, there, or at the end of the, in practice, at the end of this year, there will not be the opportunity to call upon some higher norm in order to challenge decisions of the devolves. And so the interesting question then is, we're not going to have a written constitution, I think, in the next 20 or 30 years, but how are we going to deal with those sorts of issues? And will the common law have to do a lot more heavy lifting in that respect? Will we have to go back to something like the Act of Union, 1707, which does indeed encapsulate the notion of a customs union and try and use some of those tools to try and replace what's missing under EU law? I'm going to be supporting the idea of the Barnard Commission, I think, to look at this. (laughs) Um, I take the coronavirus as a clever and well-placed personal observation, which I think is, unless any of the panel wants to talk on it, but John, what about GDP growth, your remark about GDP growth and the oil price shock impact on that? Do you think that's a fair comment? Uh, No, I don't. I mean, I I think undoubtedly the uh, economies across the world were slowed down by the oil crisis and, and commodities crisis in the 1970s in the 1970s, but what happened to the European Union is two things. One is that it bought into monetarism and neoliberalism in a big way, uh, and that's lasted right the way through, chasing inflation down, being more important than getting the growth rate up, uh, which I think has been one of the factors which has slowed the European Union up. The other was one attempt after another. First of all, the snake, then we had the ERM, and then we had the Eurozone, all of which made it much more difficult to adjust the exchange rates and these, these, uh, deal with different competitiveness. And the result of all this was that uh, 
that the southern states struggled to keep up with the northern ones. The northern ones insisted, particularly Germany, on running very large balance of payment surpluses. And the result is that the whole European economy has been slowed up ever since then. And the fact that this has happened in Europe, but not elsewhere, shows that it's the policies that have been adopted by the European Union that have been very largely responsible for this. Well, I mean, the, the problem with what you just said is that, of course, during that period, we've actually grown faster than Europe. So you, your point is completely reversed <laughs> no, no, from what you said before, uh, because they had such a big uh, uh, problem with the Eurozone. We've grown at exactly the same speed over the last well, 40 years. Okay. Um, you, you, you can hear what people think. But on the coronavirus, uh, oh, yes, I didn't use not. the words, but, the, but perhaps he was completely lost in the audience, even though they politely laughed. Uh, it was the plane full of Chinese uh, people who came back from China, and they're about to be quarantined. So, so, so the, there was a helicopter hovering over it of that radio of that station I was on, trying to see, uh, you know, get a picture of those people who were who were going to be coming down the steps, uh, who were going to be whisked off to this place. But I think there's a serious point about growth, uh, which which is uh, absolutely valid because uh, obviously if China stops. Um, then we're all going to... I mean, we're so interconnected. Yeah, I didn't mean uh, to think it didn't affect growth. It was more that... Yeah. I'm just assuming it won't pause Brexit. I was just thinking... <laughs> Ivan. I wanted to move on to a slightly different China point because Brexit could become a, a global uh, issue again and a global shock, but it shouldn't be. It's a, essentially a regional issue and we're making a meal of it on both sides, uh, if, we're, if we're candid. It's not the biggest show in the world. The China-US issue, both the trade war, which isn't just a trade war, it's a geostrategic conflict, and this is the biggest, you know, the Chinese represent as the American military political establishment sees it the biggest threat to their hegemony in a century or more, and they've seen off, you know, Wilhelmine Germany, Nazi Germany, Soviet Union, but the China, if it grows to something like a third or a half of US per capita GDP and has four times as many people, will represent a much bigger threat, as it were, to US hegemony and the unipolar world that we live in. I say all that because that's the big issue for the next 20 or 30 years in the globe. That's the issue that we're seeing come to the fore in trade policy. That's why trade is turning into such a neuralgic issue. When I worked on trade policy in the European Commission in the 1990s, it was extraordinarily interesting, and I hope I learned something about it, but nobody cared at all, including British politicians at the time, including Tony Blair when he came into office, because nobody was interested in trade policy until it started to explode as a domestic issue. It started on the left with the protests of Seattle. It's now turned into a right-wing issue and a populist rust battle issue. I disagree with John's account on the kind of imbalances, but imbalances and the Trumpite view of the imbalances and the way in which Trump is trying, he's not a remotely a free trader. This is the fantasy, watching the, this government fantasize about the US as free traders. The, the US, this US government is not free trading and isn't about to become free trading. It believes in managed trade, and in my view, that's quite a dangerous development. What strikes me, having listened to lots of American policymakers in the last few months, last few years, is they're increasingly regretting having brought the Chinese into the World Trade Organization and created a globalized economy as opposed to a rather balkanized economy. I think you understand that from a military point of view, but it's a very dangerous moment in the world 
I worked on Chinese WTO accession 20 years ago for years of my life. It took 14 years for the Western world to get the Chinese into the WTO. Yes, they do all manner of things which abuse uh, you know, um, the trade rules and infringe them, and we should all care about that. But the way in which the US administration is going about its conflict with China is not mobilizing the rest of the world, including the European Union or the UK, against it. And Huawei is another classic example. But my point with this is just, one, this is the big issue, actually, over the next 20 or 30 years for all of us. Uh, and Europe is not at the centre of that. It's a bit of a bystander. The UK is not at the centre of that. But there is a lot of naivety, I think, around our system about how much we matter in the scheme. When you see this bold and buccaneering and mid-Atlantic and WTO, and we're going to be a glorious free trading power, which is fundamentally... The WTO is in the process of collapse at the moment because the Americans have pulled out of the dispute resolution mechanism. <laughs> So multilateralism is under big threat across the world, and this is the moment where we're doing Brexit. That's why it's a risky thing to do. Now, uh, we've reached 8 o'clock, I'm afraid, and I'm apologising to the person down here who I caught their eye and said yes to. We need, I'm afraid, uh, some of the panel have other commitments, as you can imagine, uh, this evening. So um, uh, before you go, I just uh, want to say... um, We've reached, we've reached the moment where Brexit is going to be a reality, or near, much nearer to the point where it's a reality, and where the government, the UK government and EU governments will have to find a way somehow of delivering on it in a way that the public in their countries, the UK and other ones, assent to. And that's a very important uh, and complicated issue. And I would like to say that there's a big constraint, I think, on the UK government in that they've got to make this work for leave voters, particularly ones who've just voted for them in the general election. And that's a significant constraint, not much discussed yet, on the way uh, Brexit turns out. All I can say is that, to misquote the carpenters, we've only just begun. (laughs) This is not the end of Brexit, nor is it the end of events run by UK and a changing Europe or the LSE. (laughs) On this, they will go forward for months, years, perhaps decades ahead. And all I would say is, as we approach the last moments of the UK being in the European Union, and many of you will be going off to market, I use the word mark advisedly, say one way or the other, um, I'd just like to uh, thank many of you who've been to other events. I see lots of faces we've seen before here, alumni, friends, people from Kings, people from the rest of the country. Thank you for coming this evening and enjoy the rest of it, whatever you do. But I particularly want to thank my wonderful panel <laughs> and all, all my colleagues at the European Institute and the School of Public Policy and UK and Changing Europe. Europe, we've put this together. Good night.